I grew up in a small church in Legendary, as we know it now, and no, that's not the bad news, okay, before anybody abuses me later about it. it it's a Pentecostal church, okay, uh, meaning that my natural inclination on Sunday is obviously to hang from the balcony here, and, and I've been kind of holding back the use of tongues for five and a half years while I've been in a Presbyterian church. But I really struggled as a teenager with how joyful everyone acted on a Sunday morning. They smiled as they sang, which I found challenging myself this morning as I tried to force a smile as I was kind of concentrating. They would say, praise God and hallelujah, out loud. We would have a time of sharing each week and people would pass the microphone around and people would praise God for small, simple, mundane things that he was doing in their lives that week. They had the joy of the Lord in their hearts. I know, how dare they come to church like that? It was really difficult for me to put up with as a a wannabe emo, hormone-filled 15-year-old in church. But they'd also share their struggles during this time in church. And we would pray for family challenges. We'd listen as people shared that they'd been having a hard time opening the Bible that week. There was a genuine appreciation that both the devil and the world would be creating challenges for them because of how God was working in their lives. So they praised him in these challenges. And I know this paints a perfect picture, which is far from, that church was far from any churches, but there was an appreciation that God is with us in our struggles, that he's part of these battles that we face especially when they're related to how the world opposes us for our possession and faith in Christ Jesus. I have a a book at home, which admittedly I haven't read, but it's meant for, it's kind of geared towards people who are brand new to faith. And it's simply entitled, War. Why did life just get harder? It's designed to prepare new Christians for the challenges ahead or potentially the challenges that have already begun for them. I wasn't surprised flicking through it yesterday to see that this passage is on page 26. Now, let's be honest. In this country, we face very little real persecution. On the 12th of June, in a few weeks' time, our neighbours, yes, that way, (laughs) our neighbours in Monkstown, in Abbey Presbyterian, are holding a locked-out-of-the-church service where they're going to be holding their service in the car park to highlight some of the challenges the churches around the world face. People working for the likes of Release International often have to use an alias to protect their partners, the people they're working with in other countries, from real and physical danger. In parts of the world, it's a criminal offense to own or read a Bible. I struggle sometimes to get passionate about some of the issues that that we have that concern us as Christians in this country. Things like the use of, or the ability to use Christian language uh, to display things like crosses, um, the fact that we have to share spaces with other religions. When We work in an area where our local council is happy to fund some of our community work. We generally aren't at risk of physical harm in this country, and most of society's cultural norms and ethics are actually still rooted in Christianity, in our ethics and culture. 
However, for all of us who are in Christ, we will have moments where we face persecution, where the world makes it difficult for us to testify about Jesus. So I think the first thing we need to do when we're looking at this passage is to consider who the world is. And let's think about who the book of John is, is primarily geared towards. In the first half of the book, Jesus goes to the temple. He meets with a rabbi. He angers leaders by hitting a man on the Sabbath. He feeds people at Passover, makes shocking claims at festivals of the tabernacles and festival of the dedication. These are religious places, times, events, and people. This passage clarifies that these religious people are part of the problem. If I had not come and spoken to them, if I had not come and shown them, these were the religious people that he had come and spoken to and shown. This is to fulfill their law. They will put you out of the synagogue, think they are offering a service to God. It's quite clear he's including religious people in this. When Jesus talks about the world in this passage, it's not just talking about the big, bad, secular world, people who hate God, who don't believe in God, who claim there is no God, those who actively push back against Christianity. This world is anyone who does not know and does not love Jesus, including those who had been specifically named as, as God's people. It includes the religious leaders. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. Jesus is making it clear. They need to know who he is. They need to know he is one with the father. They cannot hate Jesus and love the father. And Jesus made this clear. We read it a few weeks ago in, in chapter 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know the Father. This passage today is full of language about hating Jesus and hating the Father, of not knowing Jesus and not knowing the Father. You see, it's not good enough to be part of the club it's not good enough to pay your dues, offer time and service, say the right things, tick the right boxes. Doing religion, doing Christianity isn't enough. To know the Father, we need to know Jesus. We must love Jesus. Otherwise, we don't know the Father and we don't love the Father. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and then your name drive out demons, and then your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus is really clear about this. Being religious or claiming you're a Christian but not knowing Jesus is the same as the Pharisees who held rank in the people of God but who the Jesus is warning the disciples about. We're good at that in this country, aren't we? Plenty of good living, 
plenty of staunch Protestants or staunch Catholics, wavering religion. I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. So we need to ask ourselves, do we really know Jesus? Is he more than just a buzzword as being part of the club? God's word doesn't leave any space for in-between or moderate Christianity. In Revelation 3, Jesus declares that I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. This isn't talking about practices. Whether we're taking time to, re- to pray, whether we're taking time to read the Bible diligently, whether we're turning up to, rel- to worship service religiously, whether we're even shaping our lives around our faith. However healthy that those things are, do we know and love Jesus as our Lord, as our King and as our Savior? Is he the ruling power in our lives? Because he bought our lives at a price. Or can we be like the Pharisees? Do we act apart while actually taking our place as part of this world that Jesus is warning us about? Now, much of this passage follows quite a neat rhythm. Statements linking the challenges that the disciples face with their connection to Jesus. If the world hates you, it hated me first. I have chosen you out of the world is why the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they persecuted you. They will treat you this way because of my name. They will put you out of the synagogue, anyone who kills you, because they have not known the Father or me. It sounds pretty inevitable. This isn't going to be pretty, this life in Christ. But it shouldn't be surprising. For the disciples at this point, they should know this because previous to Jesus even coming to Jerusalem, when he was with them in Matthew 16, he tells them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. Why did life just get harder? What did we expect? If we didn't expect challenges, if as those in Christ, we didn't expect the world to be against us, then we haven't properly read the promotional material given to us. Talking about this passage, Les and you begin notes that glory as the world understands it is achievement, but the glory of God is Surrender. In Philippians 3, Paul writes, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Our hope in Christ is not because he offers a cushy life. There are no promises that he will give us our best life now. We're not promised to only be given challenges we can overcome. Blessing isn't promised in this life. Take up your cross. Surrender by his grace. God is good. God is kind. But his promise for us in this life is not an easy one. 
this passage is only a few verses away from what we'll get to in the next couple of weeks at the end of chapter 16 when Jesus clearly states, in this world, you will have trouble. Have I made this clear enough yet? (laughs) Does anybody remember the full verse there? No spoilers, but we're going to come back to that in the good news section. But before we do that, I think we need to think about what our response is, what, how God calls us to respond to this persecution, to the suffering that the world will bring to us. And I think there's four things we need to consider from this passage. Firstly, what does it tell, explicitly tell the disciples to do? Very little. There are a couple of clear kind of tasks that we'll come to in a minute, but I think it's worth considering that through these 14 verses, hammering home the fact that we are going to be opposed, Jesus says next to nothing about how we should actively respond to that. There's no command to fight back, no command to vehemently argue the truth at all costs, no command to slander or talk badly of anyone, no command to care less for anyone. In many ways, it seems we're called to mostly just accept it. Sometimes we aren't called to act. Lord, that you would grant us all patience, calmness in our hearts and our minds. Secondly, verse 1 tells us that we are, chapter 16, verse 1 tells us we're not to fall away. Jesus is warning the disciples to expect this so that they will not wither and fade in their love for Christ and their zest for his mission. Note, there's no mention of protecting them from the physical harm that he's warning about as well. Their need to remain in him, to not fall away, is greater than their need for life on this world. Thirdly, Verse 27 tells us that when the advocate or the Holy Spirit comes to testify about Jesus, the disciples must also testify. So we're not to back down about speaking about the grace of of God, about Jesus redeeming life and death in this world. His place is our Messiah as our Lord and Savior. We don't back down from speaking of this because of opposition. So that's a challenge. It's not going to make us more popular. But note that Jesus doesn't say you must challenge every issue you have with everyone else's beliefs or you should have a moan about people giving you a hard time about Christianity or you must demand that the world conforms to your Christian culture and ethics. The command is testify about me. Fourthly, we're to respond in love and in prayer. In verse 20, Jesus says, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. We are servants of Christ. He is our master. So first and foremost, we are the ones who are called to obey his teaching. So what does Jesus say about this? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to flip the world's ideas back on their heads, saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
I've heard it say that it's difficult to hate someone you're praying for, so maybe that's the place to start. Let's pray for those who hate us, who oppose us. God is love. One commentator suggests that if the one great commandment is love, the one great transgression is hatred. As those in Christ, hatred is simply not an option. Despite whether people hate us, it's not an option for us to hate them back. God's kingdom is refreshingly contrary to the world's ideas, to what the world preaches to us, or how it even sometimes demands that we act. How beautifully countercultural is it to respond to hatred with love, to persecution with prayer? So, we've had the bad news and we've had the challenges of how we need to respond. That, that, that's the really difficult bit now out of the way. The world's going to hate us. And that includes some who claim to be in our camp. We'll be persecuted. We will have trouble. It's inevitable. Our life on this earth as sons and daughters in Christ does not offer us a way out of this type of suffering. In fact, we are called to participate in Christ's suffering. His suffering was the world taking him to the cross. And our response is to do very little different, but stay firm in our faith and in our mission, continue to testify to Jesus' redeeming love, his saving grace, despite being hated for it, and to love and even pray for those who oppose us. So now the good news. And once again, I have four nice Presbyterian points for you. I was told beforehand it should be three if it's Presbyterian. But Firstly, we're told that we have the company of the Holy Spirit. The helper, intercessor, comforter, guide. Verse 27, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. What Jesus is saying here echoes his words in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where he tells them not to worry when they're arrested or when they're brought before courts and judges and before rulers that the Holy Spirit will speak on their behalf, that the Holy Spirit will give them the words to say. So we're not alone in times of trouble. We aren't left to our own devices and our own weaknesses and been told to stand firm for the good news in opposing circumstances. Jesus says, you must also testify. But this is on the back of the Spirit. The Spirit will testify, and you must also testify. He comes first. He takes responsibility. He offers the strength that we don't possess. Secondly, we have Jesus' words in our hands. We really, do we really believe that Jesus' word has the power to save, to transform lives, to change hearts, to turn hatred to love, to find strength in weakness? At the start of chapter 16, it begins by Jesus saying, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. 
they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. Do we believe that God's word is true? Do we truly believe that? Do we believe that these words in chapter 16 are true? Because we know that followers of Christ were thrown out of the synagogue. We know that Saul, before becoming Paul, reveled in having Christians put to death, thinking he was doing right in service to God. So why do we take the middle part as fact, but think as, the, as verse one and four as being more, more flexible. Jesus doesn't say, I tell you this to make you a bit stronger, to help you try to stay the course, to, to prepare you to, to do better. Or so that you might be more likely to work it out and, and to remember whenever the time comes. He says, so that you will not fall away, so that you will remember. Jesus didn't just provide solid advice and a leg up to do the job that he'd given us. He provides what we need. For the disciples, history and tradition suggest that they all stayed the course. 11 of them were most likely martyred for their faith. Just like us, they will have gotten it wrong at times, but, and they weren't suddenly equipped to be perfect like Jesus, but they did not fall away. They had Jesus' living words in their ears with him beside them, and we have his living word in our hands, in our phones. And this living word is still as powerful, still as true as it ever was. This is as true as when Jesus was standing beside them, speaking it into their lives. Thirdly, we have his church around us. In verse two, the disciples are told that they'll be put out of the synagogues. And there's irony here as the disciples are kicked out of the meeting place of God's people as they are building God's church. So it's quite ironic. We're now the family where he resides. We so often take it for granted, maybe less so in the last few weeks since, since COVID and where we're now really enjoying being back together, but we so often take it for granted what we have in this. It's incredibly beautiful. In the past week, I've sat with people in tears of thankfulness for how God used Michael in our church over 14 years. Then I heard the buzz and laughter of people sharing tea together, celebrating the life of a beloved member of our church. I've had the chance to pray with elders who are trusting God's provision for our future and praying for God to heal specific named individuals that they love and care deeply for. I've been able to help a man beginning a journey out of debt because of the compassionate heart of this congregation and our local presbytery had heart to serve the most vulnerable, to follow what Jesus has taught. Had the chance to read the Bible with a man and had the opportunity to be present while a wonderful woman in our family offered comfort, care, and the knowledge of God's saving grace through Jesus 
to someone who is struggling to figure out where she is in life. And this is just what I've been privileged to witness this week. It only touches the surface of what God has been doing throughout his people in our church. And that's let alone his greater, wide and wonderful church across the world. And yes, we wind each other up. Okay? A lot of you are really annoying. We get on each other's nerves. We don't always see eye to eye. We sometimes fall out. We hurt one another and we struggle to forgive one another. But we also worship together. We learn together. We grow together, serve together. We hold each other up when we are weak. Whenever COVID-19 kind of kicked off in this country, when we were first locked down, I started working out of a little room at the back of our house. There's no window, and the previous owner used to sell uh, Christian books from that room, so it's, it's quite beautiful that I've spent the last few days in that room preparing to speak from God's word, continuing on his presence, kind of working in our home. It's, a, it's, it's quite a beautiful thing that we really appreciate in our family. But anyway, whenever COVID began, there were long hours. It was frustrating at times, not being able to do my normal work, um, having to learn new skills, all the, all the challenges that people dealt with at the start of COVID. But about six or nine months down the line, when our staff team were able to get together upstairs in the meeting room, spread out for the first time in person, at the end of the meeting, I walked straight out the door got into my car and went for a drive because I was overcome by emotion because I realized the biggest thing that I had missed was being with my church family, being close, working together with the people of God. See, God knew what he was doing when he designed this. It's a good thing. It's not an optional thing. Interestingly, Paul, in his letters to the various new churches that he's planted, writes, our Lord, 53 times, but my Lord only once. We are made to be in relationship. There's so much more that could be said about that, about the relationship between the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and us and all of that. But we are meant to be in relationship as we serve, worship, learn, grow as God's people. Finally, the most important bit of good news is we have hope in glory beyond. Chapter 5, verse 19 says, If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Being in Christ doesn't offer us riches or comfort here in this world. In fact, today's passage warns us it's going to be more difficult. Life will be challenging because of our faith. But these words of warning also hold out hope. I have been chosen by Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, lifted from what is a hopeless life, and I am held and kept in him. Remember earlier when we jumped forward to verse 33 of chapter 16, in this world you will have trouble. This is the full verse. 
I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Being in Jesus, we have hope beyond this world. Our hope is not in this world. We have been chosen out of it. Our hope is for what Jesus accomplished on the cross when he died and was raised three days later. In his crucifixion, all our weakness, all our brokenness, all the death that is in us that has distorted the beautiful image of God, the way we were created, is wiped away. No more guilt, no more shame. We're made blameless in the eyes of God and therefore worthy of coming into his presence. And by his resurrection, Jesus defeated death. Meaning, past our days on this earth, we have a hope of eternity, free from all that brokenness in the presence of our loving Father. But take heart, I have overcome the world. When we look at those first three points I mentioned, having the company of, Holy, of the Holy Spirit, the closeness, the guidance, his advocating for us, having Jesus' word in our hands, teaching us, reassuring us, it's truth and power available to us, being part of God's family in the church, seeing its beauty, experiencing the care and the love of, our, of each other. These are incredible blessings that we have here and now. And yet, they are only a foretaste of what's to come. When all is made new, when the broken is made perfect. No more hatred, but only love. So reading this passage today, we're given a clear instruction that being a follower of Christ isn't a walk in the park. There will be hatred, there will be persecution. In many ways, we're incredibly blessed to face the least of that in a country such as this. We shouldn't claim otherwise, but there will be challenges. And it may not always look like we expect them to look. And there's a big ask in how we respond. We're called to stand firm, not to fall away, to continue to testify to Jesus' saving grace. Further, we're asked to love and pray for our enemies. It's not fluffy Christianity. It's a call to take up our cross, to surrender, to follow him. But Jesus' love also provides abundantly. The Holy Spirit has been sent to testify ahead of us. It's powerful and it's true that we have Jesus' words in our hands, just as, he, as the disciples had his words in their ears. And we've been surrounded by a family in the church, the people in whom he resides. And finally, above all else, we have this great hope for the future, which is greater than all of these things. We have this hope beyond to be with God, to be with Jesus one day in the place that he has secured for us with the Father seeing his face, being embraced in his perfect love. All of this I have told you so that you will not fall away. At one with him I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. My name is graven 
on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can force me to depart. He's purchased my soul. My name is written on his heart. My life is hid with Christ on high. I can have confidence in the hope I have through the one who has paid a price and chosen me out of this world. And that confidence is available to me. It's available to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have challenges in this world because we follow you. Lord, we thank you that as we face persecution, as we are opposed for our faith in you, for our love of you, for our desire to testify about you, that then when we are opposed, that we know that will remind us that we are in you, so we are chosen by you, we are held by you. And God, we thank you that you provide all we need amidst that. You remind us that it's not about our safety or our comfort in this world, but about our place in you, our hope for the future, and yet also you provide for us here. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that he's here with us today, comforting and guiding us, giving us the words when we don't have them, praying on our behalf, interceding for us. We thank you for this word that you've given us this powerful and true word, ever as powerful today as it was when Jesus was standing with the disciples. And we thank you for this church family. God, we thank you for all that we take for granted, the love and care that we have, the support we have, the opportunity to grow together, to worship you together, to serve you together, to experience your love as your family. And most of all, Lord, keep it firmly placed at the front of our hearts that our greatest hope is not for this world but for the, the eternity beyond when we get to see your face when all is made new when all the brokenness becomes beautiful Lord we thank you for your presence here with